Yes, dear Lord, we anxiously wait for your coming. We know your coming is near even at the door. Give us grace to finish our races strong that we might run into your arms and hear you say, well done, good and faithful servants. And Lord, we ask you now that your spirit would be our teacher, bringing forth the teaching of your word and the power of your spirit. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right. Very good. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 7. All right. We are currently in Revelation chapter 7, which is a pause or a parenthesis before Jesus breaks the seventh seal, chapter 8, verse 1, which unleashes the seven trumpet judgments. So, verse 9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might, be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So guys, here we see all of heaven consisting of angelic beings and redeemed humanity standing around the throne of God, singing praises with uh, joy inexpressible and full of glory. Uh, However, back at the ranch, on the earth, the rebels are reaping what they have sown. Uh, All of life boils down to two choices. Are you going to choose God or the world? Really, that's all you got. Okay, when you want to get real simple with everything, uh, what, what choice are you going to make in life? To, to, to serve God, honor Him, or to serve yourself and live for this life? Uh, turn to Hebrews quickly. I feel like it's just important. I mean, the Bible is full of verses that talk about uh, the foolishness of laying up treasures on the earth and how that uh, someday all the riches that people have put so much trust in are going to be uh, gone. In Hebrews 12, let's pick it up in verse 25. Where the writer says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have peace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. And the idea is that God is going to shake this world someday so hard, we're going to see it in Revelation. That everything that can be shaken, everything that was made by man's hands is going to crumble and fall. And only that which cannot be shaken 
which that which is spiritual, eternal, the things of God, uh, only they are going to remain. Remember when we studied 1 John chapter 2. Uh, John said in verse 15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. He said, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is what? Passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So we're seeing everything coming to pass that God has said for all the years that, you know, he led Moses and the children of Israel out of Egypt and all and made a covenant with them and gave them his word. That's what the writer to Hebrews is talking about, how they wouldn't, Listen to Moses, who spoke from earth, uh, and especially not, not listening to him who spoke from heaven, okay, God Almighty. And uh, God says, I'm going to remove everything that can be removed, physically speaking, all the wealth of the earth and everything that man is putting his, his, um, uh, his uh, trust in, and I'm going to replace it with a heavenly kingdom. Uh, spiritual things that cannot be taken. Which kingdom do you want to be a part of? Man's kingdom? Uh, it's on its way out. God's kingdom? Coming shortly. And uh, he's inviting everyone to be a part of that kingdom. Verse 13. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes? The elders are asking John, um, And where do they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. <laughs> you tell me. Uh, so he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So as we saw last time, these people are tribulation saints. All right? They got saved during the tribulation period and were martyred. We see them wearing white robes, which represent that they are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, the only way anyone can enter into heaven, as opposed to the filthy rags of self-righteousness. You can read Isaiah 64, verse 6. Unbelievers, religious unbelievers, try to clothe themselves in what God called, his words, the filthy rags of self-righteousness. On the earth, among the religious, they look pretty good. Whatever they're wrapping themselves in. Good works, going to church, lighting candles, praying rosaries, as I did as a Catholic, helping out in the local food pantry. Not a bad thing to do, but... People will wrap themselves in these works thinking that they're going to earn God's favor and earn a place in heaven. And in the eyes of God, anything that's done out of a fallen, corrupted heart can never please God. It's an abomination. He rejects it out of hand. And it's like filthy rags to him. The only righteousness that will be allowed into heaven is the righteousness of Christ, which is symbolized by the white robes because only Christ can give us the white robes of righteousness. Uh, verse 14, guys, when it says, um, these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The, the Greek is literally, these are the ones that came out of the tribulation, the great one, which means the second half of the seven-year tribulation period, signifying that the martyrdom of all these tribulation saints is taking place during the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, also known as the great tribulation. Uh, turn to Matthew 24. Because Jesus talks about this, and we've already looked at it. Let's look at it quickly again. Matthew 24, starting with verse 15. 
Now, Jesus is commenting on these last seven years. He gives a quick overview in verses 4 to 14, then starting with verse 15, he zeroes in on the last seven years, seven, uh, three and a half years to amplify that. So Matthew 24, verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand important stuff. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. Verse 21, For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. The time between Matthew 24, verse 15 and verse 21 will be the time when the Antichrist will demand. Initially, when he comes on the scene, uh, allegiance will be voluntary, okay? Uh, just like the COVID vaccine. I, no, I'm not going there. Uh, but eventually, uh, it's not going to be voluntary anymore. As you come into the second half of the tribulation period, now allegiance to the Antichrist is demanded. Is demanded. He demands people take his mark to identify themselves with him. And um, when he does this, he will demand uh, people's loyalty, allegiance, by forcing people to take his mark. And if they don't, he will kill them by the hundreds of thousands and no doubt by the millions. And we're seeing that in John and uh, Revelation 7, this great multitude. In fact, verse 14, again, in Revelation 7, these are the ones who who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So we're talking about the same now, folks. As Jesus alluded to, this time of great tribulation, where the Antichrist demands to be worshipped as God now, and, uh, and his followers, this is a religious cult. It's no longer a political movement. Uh, there's a question of whether it ever was when he shows up. It's become a full-blown cult worship of this guy. And anyone who doesn't worship the Antichrist is looked upon as a very evil person that must be uh, gotten rid of. And so the Antichrist and his followers are going to murder uh, Christians during this tribulation, great tribulation period uh, by, the, by the millions, really. Okay? Uh, John Walvert, very respected uh, commentator and author, said, and I quote, Some believe that the majority of saints in the tribulation will die as martyrs. But many will be killed by earthquakes, war, and pestilence. Others will be the object of special persecution by the world ruler, the Antichrist. They will be hounded to death as much as the Jews were in World War II, because they will not worship the beast. They will be under a death sentence. Those who accept Christ in that time may be faced with the solemn alternative of either renouncing their faith in Christ and worshiping the beast or being slain. The result will be multiplied thousands of martyrs, end quote. Now, guys, those that, and I just have to throw this out because some of you don't even know what I'm going to talk about. That's fine. I just thought I'd throw it out, though. Those who understand the pre-wrath rapture position, that's one of the four main rapture positions, okay? Those who hold to a pre-wrath rapture view, uh, and possibly others, I don't know, believe this group represents the church. They believe this group right here, uh, Revelation 7, verse 9, where it says, A great multitude 
which no one can number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. They believe these are church saints who had just been recently raptured off of the earth, and now they appear in heaven in Revelation chapter 7. Those in the pre-wrath rapture camp believe the church is going to go into the great tribulation period and then be raptured sometime after the midpoint during what the Bible calls the great tribulation portion of those final, final seven years. As I've been saying, I staunchly believe the church will be raptured before, before the seven-year tribulation period even begins. It's what's called the pre-tribulation rapture view. And I belong, I belong in that camp. But with regard to, the, to these people holding palm branches in heaven, okay, now John sees a multitude that can't even be numbered, uh, of, of all these people uh, in heaven holding palm branches, if these are in fact the church, okay, as many contend they are, if that is true, why doesn't John recognize any of them? Now stay with me. John was an elder in the church. If this group is the church, which has just been raptured out of the grave, right? Because, you know, before the rapture, uh, a microsecond, uh, the dead in Christ are raised first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet the Lord near. So think about it. Uh, if this group represents the church who has just been raptured out of the grave and out of the tribulation period, those who are still alive, it is very strange that John doesn't recognize any of them. Who are these? I don't know. You tell me. He didn't say, oh, there's, there's John, there's, there's, you know, there's Peter. There's, uh, you know, this guy. Uh, he, he doesn't start rattling off names. I mean, he knew some of them, right? First century saints would have been included in those that had died and were raised, right? Once again, the reason John didn't recognize any of these is because these are not church saints, they are tribulation saints. Church saints, including John, were raptured up into heaven at the beginning of chapter 4, as we have said numerous times. Uh, author Mark Hitchcock said with regard to this group, and I quote, This group of believers is not the church as some suppose. The church of Jesus Christ will be raptured, into he raptured to heaven before the outpouring of God's wrath on earth. And he quotes 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, Revelation 3, 10. We've quoted all of those already. You can look them up on your own. But he said the multitude in Revelation 7 is comprised of Gentiles who trust Christ after the rapture and are martyred for their faith during the great tribulation. They are tribulation saints. They are part of the final harvest of souls during the tribulation. This means there will be a great revival during the great tribulation, end quote. I thoroughly, totally agree. All right, Revelation 7, 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. Now, you can, you can tell these are not the church because there are significant differences between church saints and these tribulation saints. For example, these saints are before the throne of God and serve him day and night. We as the church sit on thrones and reign with Jesus as his bride 
I'll give you three of the scriptures that talk about this. Revelation 1, verse 6, the redeemed talking, and Jesus has made us kings, kings reign, and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 2 Timothy 2, 12, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. And then Revelation 20, verse 6, Blessed and holy is he, or she, who has part in the first resurrection. That's a reference to the rapture. Uh, it includes the rapture. It's a category. It's not an event. Uh, go back and listen to 1 Corinthians 15. We talked about this. When you see the first resurrection, that's not an event. It's a category. Jesus was part of the first resurrection. The church is part of the first resurrection. The Old Testament saints were raised when Jesus returns. And the tribulation saints also raised when he returns to the earth to set up his kingdom are all part of the first resurrection. It's a category, not an event. Okay, uh, But just for our sake, think of the rapture. Okay, So... Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection or the rapture. Over such, the second death has no power. Second death is a reference to hell, the lake of fire. Okay? If you're raptured, okay, if you go to heaven in the rapture, obviously you're a true believer in Christ and you will never see hell. We'll never see condemnation. Okay, so, you know, And that's what is being repeated here. Uh, on such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and listen, shall reign with him a thousand years. It seems these tribulation saints will be before the throne of God, serving him day and night. And when's that going to happen? I believe it's clear it's going to happen during the millennial kingdom. Some commentators have interpreted this to mean that these people are before God's throne and serve him day and night in the new creation. That. It's talked about in 2 Peter 3, verses 10 to 13, Revelation 21, verse 1. But according to Revelation 21, verses 22 and 5, you can look these up at your leisure. There is no temple or no night in the new heavens and new earth after God destroys the original creation, the original heavens and the earth, the original universe, and recreates the entire thing. We've talked about this many times, right? Uh, the original creation was good until it was corrupted. Uh, when man sinned in the garden, the whole creation was corrupted, not just Adam and Eve. And so uh, there's coming a point when God is going to destroy the present. Second uh, Peter 3 really hits his home, verses 10 to 13. Okay, um, But when God destroys and vaporizes the first creation, he's going to recreate, he's going to make a new heavens, a new earth, a new city uh, called New Jerusalem where we're going to live. Um, that will be the eternal state. That will be, we, we're done with time. Uh, this is going to be uh, an, a new creation outside of time. Uh, just so you understand. And uh, the idea being that in this new creation, there is no temple. Revelation 21 tells us clearly. And no night. So how can these people serve the Lord day and night in the temple in the new creation? No, it can't be. It's got to be talking, Re Revelation 7, 15 has to be a reference to the millennial kingdom that these tribulation, tribulation saints serve God during that time. Uh, hey, nothing wrong with that. That's a, great, that's a great way to live, serving God in his temple. I'm just saying the church has got a different call, a different, uh, you know, we are called to be the bride of Christ. And as such, we are going to reign with him as his bride uh, on his throne, okay? Um, it's a different category. Okay, it's all heaven, 
okay, it's all good, but, uh, you know, that kind of thing, you know. Um, but when I say when they, when they serve God, that's in the millennial kingdom. All right, uh, Revelation seven sixteen. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. This becomes all the more significant when you remember that these people came out of the great tribulation. They did not take the mark of the beast. If they did, they wouldn't be in heaven. Okay? But these people came out of the great tribulation. They, they didn't take the mark of the beast, which means they couldn't buy or sell. That meant that many of them probably starved to death. As they suffered the horrors of the great tribulation, these redeemed people of God had endured hunger, thirst, and scorching heat. That's interesting because something is going to happen to the sun during the tribulation period where it's going to begin to scorch people upon the earth. And obviously that's the, 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 these were a part of that. They suffered uh, along with others. Um, but guys, for all the physical torment and mental pain of fearing for their lives and the lives of their, of their loved ones, it's all over now. It's all over now. You know, I'm always moved as I read the Gospels and um, I see the burden of the Lord Jesus moving up to the cross. Um, the night in the, before the cross in the garden, how he sweat great drops of, of sweat with, mixed with blood, right? Great drops of blood. Um, so burdened uh, for what was coming, you know? And, uh, and then... After his crucifixion, on the third day when he rose again, the joy, the joy. Um, Hebrews 12, he endured the cross, despising the shame, looking forward to the joy. What was the joy? That he had redeemed his bride. That by going to the cross, he, did, he, did he look forward to the cross? No, he endured the cross, looking past the cross to the fact that by him dying, we could live. And he was going to gather for himself a bride out of all fallen humanity who would live with him and reign with him forever in his kingdom. The joy, right? And, you know, I look at these people. Uh, how horrific it must have been to go through the tribulation period and eventually be martyred, right? And, um, but now it's all over. It's all over. They will never shed another tear for all eternity. They will never again feel hunger or thirst. They will never experience pain or heartache or depression or sorrow or death ever again. Revelation 7, 7, 7.17, For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And we could compare that to Revelation 21, verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. The former things have passed away. There is a new day coming. And, uh, you know, I, I tell people, and I've, I've been kind of asked this, or I've presented this to people over the years, and, and I phrase it this way. If you're a Christian, this life is as bad as it's ever going to get. If you're an unbeliever, this life is as good as it's ever going to get. You take your choice. 
Okay, you take your choice. You know, I didn't live, obviously, through the horrors of Nazi Germany. But I've read things. And um, I've uh, read uh, accounts by Christians who lived through it. Corey Ten Boom and others, of course. Uh, Bonhoeffer. And I've often thought, what would it be like to live under that tyranny? Because I think it's coming again. I mean, it's, it's starting, it's ramping up now, but it's going to reach a crescendo when the Antichrist shows up. Same idea, only it's going to be worldwide. Nazi Germany was localized, okay? It's big, but not worldwide, okay? People still had a place to run for freedom. And I've heard uh, people that said, we fled Nazi Germany. We fled uh, you know, Austria, and we came to America. We, they had a place of peace they could go to or safety. If the whole world is taken over by the Antichrist, there's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to run for safety except get yourself ready by accepting Christ to be taken in the, king, in the rapture. But what would it be like to live in that, that kind of fear? You know, people that lived in communist countries, they give you a little card in those days. They give you a little card. You couldn't get food or medicine without that card. Uh, if you didn't have that card, you're basically on your own, okay? Many died because they couldn't get the supplies or the stuff they needed to live, right? But again, what would it be like to be asleep in your bed in the middle of the night and, and the door knocked down and, uh, you know, uh, Nazis coming in and, and taking you and your loved ones out of your house to various concentration camps, uh, not even not seeing each other ever again. If you if you even survived that, um, what's coming is going to be so horrific that the only hope people are going to have when they get saved, because uh, during the tribulation period, there's going to be no fence sitters, okay, no uh, mug mugwumps. What's a mugwump? A mugwump is a person that is straddling the fence with their mug on one side and their wump on the other. <laughs> They're fence straddlers, you know? We have a lot of mugwumps in the church today. They don't know which side they want to be on, you know? Uh, it's Jesus, you know, here and there, but you know, sometimes it's real. I'm really for Jesus. Other times they're in the world doing their own. I don't know. But during the tribulation period, there'll be no... No gray areas. There's going to be no lukewarm people. You're either all in or you're not. Because it's your life. Your life is on the line. And uh, I, I just know that, well, the, the only hope is, is the Lord. The only hope is the Lord. And uh, I don't believe we'll be down here to see the Antichrist come to power and the, and the tribulation period officially begin. Uh, I could be wrong. I guess we should prepare for the reality that that might be the case. I don't think it's going to happen that way. But again, I'm not infallible. I could be wrong. But um, hopefully our loved ones will come to Christ, if not now, then, and uh, give, be given the grace of God to endure and so on. But um, chapter 8, verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, that would be Jesus opening the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Uh, think of all the angels, the elders, the cherubim and seraphim we have been introduced to in chapters 4 and 5. Think of all the voices, and I would imagine a thunderous 
um, noise of praise, right? Up until this point, uh, all this praise and worshiping of God uh, by billions and billions and billions of beings, both angelic and glorified humanity, all singing praises to God with a, a deafening roar, and all of a sudden, dead silence. Dead silence. You talk about a dramatic pause. Okay? Dead silence. You know, four living creatures who proclaim without rest, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Um, and again, just suddenly everything goes dead silent for about a half an hour. Again, this is quite a dramatic pause. Author Mark Hitchcock said, and I quote, everything is on hold. Pausing for what comes next. The next kingly move occurs when seven angels are given seven trumpets to sound. The response is breathless. Is the response is breathless anticipation of what's coming? A holy hush in heaven before all hell breaks loose on earth. End quote. Another well-known pastor comments, and he says, and I quote: After all that loudness, as the full fury of the final judgments are about to be released, silence falls on the heavenly scene. The implication is that when the judgment about to happen begin, uh, becomes visible as the seventh seal is broken and the scroll unrolled, both the redeemed and the angels are reduced to silence in anticipation of the grim reality of the destruction they see written on the scroll. The half an hour of silence is the calm before the storm. It is the silence of foreboding of intense expectation of awe at what God is about to do. Well, what God is about to do is transition from great tribulation into, excuse me, from tribulation into great tribulation, as we read in Matthew 24, 21. It's going to signify God shifting his wrath into high gear, into high gear, from the day of the Lord, listen, to the awesome and terrible day of the Lord judgments. We have already looked at Malachi ver, uh, chapter 4, verse 5, Acts chapter 2, verse 20, which quotes Malachi 4, verse 5, which talks about at one point in the tribulation, things are going to ramp up like a woman in labor, right? Labor pains start off, you know, kind of spaced far apart and not very intense. But as you get closer to the child's birth, things get much more intense. The pain is unbearable. Uh, contractions are right on top of each other, and then the child is born. This is the pattern that Jesus laid down for the, great, for the tribulation period. First three and a half years, uh, tribulation, pain, anguish, judgments, after this midpoint. And think of it, at the midpoint, the Antichrist... Sets up his image in the Holy of Holies, the ultimate defilement. Sets up his, his image in the Holy of Holies, God's throne room on the earth, and now demands to be worshipped as God. And how many in this world will follow him and worship him? I don't know for sure, but it's going to be a lot. So much so that that is the final straw, if I could put it that way. God's judgments, and we'll talk about that more, well, in just a second. God's judgments up until this point have been designed to get people's attention. Now they are going to be designed to just wipe out the earth dwellers. Okay? 
Everything is going to be shifting into high gear now. The trumpet judgments will ultimately give way to the bowl judgments. And both of those, trumpet and bowl judgments, will finally bring an end, listen, to this present evil age of man's rebellion and will usher in the return of Jesus Christ and the glorious kingdom age. This is what the Jews have been waiting for all their lives. They were, they have been taught from the time they were small children that ever since the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and the fall occurred, this world was plunged into moral and spiritual darkness. Man's the age of man's rebellion. But they always taught their kids there's coming a glorious kingdom age where Messiah is going to come. He's going to set up a kingdom. It'll be an, a, a, an age of light and righteousness and love where you don't have to lock your doors at night and feel scared. Um, you can sit under your own fig tree and not be afraid. Uh, war won't be practiced anymore. The Messiah will make sure there are no wars. In fact, they'll take their swords and spears and beat them into plowshares and pruning hooks and steady war no more. This is the day that's coming. But um, even as the Lord brings judgment, and I'm talking about primarily the first three and a half years, and then, yes, into the second three and a half, as we're going to see when we continue on, at one point I'm convinced nobody else is going to get saved. Any, everyone who was, was going to get saved at this point coming up has gotten saved. We're not there yet. But I want you to understand that even during these judgments, the Holy Spirit will be at work using these horrific events, and they will be horrific, to bring millions upon millions to Jesus during this time because, as Peter said in 2 Peter 3, 9, God is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the heart of our God. God delights in showing mercy. That is God's, if I can put it this way, default position. A lot of folks think that God only lives to make their lives miserable. He only lives to have them step out of line so he can smash them. Not true. Very untrue. Our God is a God of love and mercy. And um, he doesn't get any pleasure out of sending anyone to hell. He wants to save as many as possible from ultimate eternal judgment. You don't have to turn to these. I'll read them to you. You remember Ezekiel 18, where Israel had gotten so bad, and God had sent so many prophets to, to, to you know, plead with them to turn from their wicked ways so God wouldn't have to judge them. And at one point, God just, he just laments. He pours his heart out and says, Why? Why will you not listen? Why are you so stubborn and hard-hearted? Why will you die? I don't get any pleasure out of the death of the wicked. I want you to repent so I can forgive you. Why is it that you're so hard-hearted that no matter what I do to reach out to you and to, and to, and to come, say, come to me, I'll forgive your sins. If you just come to me and get right with me. And yet you, you just harden your heart all the more. This is the heart of our God. Habakkuk 3 verse 2. Habakkuk said, Oh Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. Lord, I've heard your talk of judgment. I'm terrified. Oh Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. 
Lord, I know you're going to judge. I'm terrified to think of that. You've, you've told us you have no alternative now. But Lord, as you judge, please remember mercy. That even in judgment, there is opportunity for people to repent. And that's what is being talked about. That's what I believe is happening in Revelation. Where, yeah, it's, it, things are ramping up, but there's still time for people to repent. Some will, many will. Many others won't. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 12 and 13, God is talking to his people. And, he's, and I'll paraphrase. He's saying, look, the Syrians are in front of you. The Philistines are behind you. And they shall devour Israel with an open mouth. You're, you're, you're about ready to be devoured as a nation because of your wickedness and immorality. For all this, his anger has not turned away. For, for all of this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Uh, for the people do not turn to him who strikes them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. And what the prophet is saying, what does God have to do? I mean, judgment is at the door. you got the Syrians in front of you, the Philistines behind you. In the midst of this, you're going down. The country is going to be devoured soon. Um, but God is raised, reaching his hand out and saying, come. You're on a sinking ship. <laughs> Jump. Come to me. And yet for all of this, they do not seek the Lord. When a people or a person gets that hard-hearted, there's no hope then. Even as God said to Jeremiah at one point, Jeremiah, don't pray for these people anymore. It's too late. I won't listen. Judgment's coming. I mean, they had their opportunity to repent. They refused to repent. Um, I have no other choice but to judge them. But remember, this is going to be a time, tribulation period, where... So many people are going to get saved when they get martyred. John can't even count them in heaven in chapter 7, right? I like what J. Vernon McGee said on the subject. He said, I want to repeat this. The 144,000 witnesses in the Great Tribulation period are going to do in seven years what the church up to the present has not done in over 1,900 years. Uh, I, I think, kind of believe that's right. There's a good possibility, that's what he's talking about, that more people are going to get saved in the last seven years of man's, not existence, but rule. I mean, we're in the, the, the present age of man's rule. Wow. Has this been a remarkably horrific experiment <laughs> in self-governance? Okay. Uh, but the idea is that, um, that God is going to be working. Now you say, well, why are so many going to get saved then, and they're not getting saved right now. Think about it, okay? When the tribulation period begins, God begins to take away people's comforts, material wealth, everything they've invested their lives in, everything they're putting their hope in, right? Their bank accounts, their IRAs, uh, all these other things. As God begins to remove these things from people, he strips away all of their distra distractions. And whenever God uh, takes away people's distractions, that's what the world is. You know, don't love the world nor the things in the world. Everything in the world, love of the flesh, love of the eyes, love, pride of life. It's all designed by Satan to be a distraction. Get your eyes off of God. When God takes away all those distractions, all those worldly uh, uh, you know, blessings and, and wealth and things, People have nowhere to look but God. Now, some will be defiant till the end. You see these folks, you know, 
I mean, God loves them, and he's reaching his hand out to them, and they're bound and determined to go to hell. I think it was Spurgeon. who, You know, people say to me, I can't believe in a God who, you know, sends people to hell. I say, I always tell them, God doesn't send people to hell. People choose to go there. Spurgeon said, if you wind up going to hell, you can get there, Spurgeon said, if you try hard enough. But know this, to get to hell, you're going to have to step over the broken, bloodied body of, Jesus, body of Jesus Christ who died to keep you out of hell. But you can get there. If you're that stubborn and determined to get to hell, you'll get there. And I hope you have a lot of satisfaction for all eternity thinking about how incredible you were that you made it to hell. I mean, but, but there are many others who are soft-hearted, and God will really work, and they're going to get saved. I mean, the tribulation period is going to be an incredible evangelistic opportunity. Uh, verse 2, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. All of this apparently happens, guys, in rapt silence of the anticipation of all who are in heaven at what they are about to see take place when the seven angels sound these trumpet judgments. And again, during this silence, these seven angels are given these trumpets. And that's significant to John because John was Jewish, and he understood the place of trumpets in Israel's national life. Trumpets occupied a very important place in Israel's national life. We, we, we read in Numbers 10 how that trumpets had three important uses. First, they called people uh, together. Uh, they called the people together. In other words, they announced an assembly. Uh, they announced war. And they announced various special occasions. The trumpet sounded at Mount Sinai when the law was given, Exodus 19, verses 16 to 19. And trumpets were blown when the king was anointed and enthroned, 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 34 and 39. Of course, if I asked you what was the most significant uh, passage or one of the most that you remember with regard to trumpets, you probably would say, well, especially if you know the Old Testament, uh, the conquest of Jericho, right? How that they were, children of Israel were commanded by God to march around the, in silence now. In silence, march around the city once for six days, seventh day, march around the city seven times, and then blow the trumpets and shout, right? And the walls fell. Uh, in that passage, the trumpets were blown as a symbol of war and ultimately of victory. And I really believe, guys, that's what's going on here. Uh, God is declaring on the earth dwellers war. Now, he's already been pouring his judgments out, but now it becomes official. As they, um, they've been trying to write it off, explain it away. These aren't God's judgments. That's ridiculous. It's just natural catastrophes, global warming. That's what it is. It's all the result of global. See, we told you we should have, yeah. But now as it's become more and more clear, now this is God's judgments. At the end of chapter 6, we saw that, right? Now it's no longer a matter of ignorance. Now people are taking sides. And a lot of folks are declaring war on God because he's apparently declared war on them, or at least he's doing so right here. Uh, declaring war on the earth dwellers, that term is unique to Revelation. It appears 11 times, I believe. It speaks of militant, rebellious unbelievers. And he's going to judge these folks. 
using his top angelic officers to be the instruments through which these judgments are poured out upon the earth. It's, it's important for people who only want to focus on the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, to realize that God is not a pacifist. Yes, he is definitely a God of love and mercy, as we said. He delights in showing mercy and not bringing judgment if he, if he can. Uh, he is definitely a God of love and mercy, but if, re if rebellious man refuses to repent of his sins, well, they will come to understand what the Bible says of God, that the Lord is a man of war. You don't want to go to war against God. Okay, You want to surrender. All right, You want to surrender. Um, we have talked about this. In those days, if a king came riding up to your city, riding on a donkey, from what I've been able to, to study, that was a sign of him saying, I want peace. I'm not, I'm not coming for war. I, I want peace. If he came riding on a white charger, get ready. He's coming to make war. Jesus came the first time to the people of Jerusalem riding what? A donkey. He wanted peace. They took him and crucified him. They wanted war. The second time he comes, we see him in Revelation 19 riding what? A white horse. He's going to make war with the people of the world. You don't want to make war with God. It's bad enough, the Bible says, woe unto that person who strives with his maker. Okay? Uh, you know, that's tough enough. But you don't want to go to war against God. God is a man of war. He's a loving God, merciful God. But if you want to go to war with God, you will, you will find that he is a man of war. Isaiah 42, verse 13. The Lord will march forth like a mighty man. He will come out like a warrior, full of fury. He will shout his battle cry and crush all his enemies. Again, read Revelation 19. We'll get there eventually. Okay, uh, interesting. John says, I saw the seven angels who stand before God. Definite article. It appears that these seven angels belong to a higher class of angels, an elite group. Possibly they are what's called ark angels. The word ark in the Greek means first or ruling. And I believe in this context, it speaks of a special group of high-ranking angels who are over the other angels of heaven in authority. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul divided the angelic realm, not just God's angels, but all angels, good and fallen, into these hierarchical categories. Remember, he talked about this, ranking groups when he said uh, there are principalities, powers, thrones and dominions that's a military way that's a, a way of saying there are military hierarchies yeah it's like in our armies you have your generals and uh, captains and lieutenants i don't know how the order goes forgive me uh okay but um you know there are rankings all right and that is the way it is in uh in heaven uh among god's angels and even among the fallen angels that satan controls uh they are divided into these uh, these categories, this, this hierarchy of principalities, powers, thrones, and dominions. 
These seven angels, called the angels, these seven angels are no doubt the strongest the Lord had created. Those who stand at his side, in his presence, not to protect God. Obviously, that's not, you know, why are the angels around God? Are they protecting God? No, you don't. No, no. Not to protect God, but to instantly obey his orders to go on special missions for the king. These are special forces angels, if you will. Okay? We only know the names of two of these archangels, Michael and Gabriel. Now, Michael is called an archangel in Jude 9. He is called the great prince in Daniel 12, verse 1. He is also called one of the chief princes in Daniel 10, verse 13, indicating there are other chief princes or, or archangels in heaven. In Revelation 12, verse 7, it tells us that Daniel, uh, excuse me, that Michael, I should say, uh, is the commanding officer over a vast heavenly army of angelic beings. And no doubt Gabriel is also, and others, others. Now, Gabriel isn't actually called an archangel by name in Scripture, but I think he is one. And I could be wrong. I think he's also an archangel. Uh, all you have to do is look at how he identifies himself to Mary in Luke 1, when he said to her, Luke 1, verse 19, I am Gabriel, listen who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. If you compare that with Revelation chapter 8, verse 2, and I saw the seven angels who stand before God, well, I don't know, in my mind, you get the impression that Gabriel is one of God's top lieutenant angels, one of his archangels. The other five archangels aren't mentioned by name in the scriptures. Uh, Jewish tradition quoting from the apocryphal books of Tobit and Enoch, uh, gives the possible names of four of them, Raphael, Uriel, Sarachiel, and Raguel. Uh, it's, those are apocryphal books. We don't, they're not inspired, so you know, take that for what you will. Uh, Revelation 8, verse 3. Then another angel, this would be uh, another one not of the seven, having a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. Remember we said that there is a temple in heaven. Revelation talks about it, right? And that the earthly temple was actually a model of the heavenly temple. So there is, and if you study the, the tabernacle, which is a little easier, uh, to picture in your mind, uh, later on was replaced by the temple, the permanent structure that Solomon built. But um, if you were to enter into the uh, into the courtyard of the tabernacle, there was a fence 75 feet wide, 150 feet uh, long, with one door. One door led into this enclosure. This is the tent was set up right. Uh, when you walked in, you first of all came to uh, the uh, altar of sacrifice where the animal was sacrificed by the priest. Then directly behind that you had, in the tabernacle, you had uh, a laver, which was, think of a large birdbath-looking thing. Now, when Solomon built the temple, I mean, how many lavers did he have? I forgot, but, oh no, it was a massive laver, like a, like a swimming pool. 
uh, head up on a pedestal and with, I think, 12 oxen uh, for its base. So he made gigantic. Solomon liked big stuff. Um, but tabernacle stuff, it just you, you walk from the, from the altar of sacrifice to the laver because you just butchered an animal. And so you washed up then in the laver, and then you went into the, the, the temple or tabernacle, but later the temple proper. The, had two compartments. First compartment was the uh, holy place where you had a table of showbread to the right, menorah to the left. And right in front of the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place or the holy of holies was this golden altar. Right in front of the curtain was a golden altar. Now, that was the altar that uh, incense was burned to God. It was sig- uh, symbolic of prayer. Okay, so uh, incense in scripture is often used in a symbolic way to speak of prayer. And I want you to get that in your mind's eye that um, that another angel uh, having a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar. See, that's where prayers were offered to God by the priest, the golden altar, um, which was before the throne. What are these prayers? What are these prayers? Why is it mentioned right here? I believe, guys, these are what is what are known as imprecatory prayers. The imprecatory prayers of the Old Testament saints and even the imprecatory prayers of the tribulation saints as we saw in chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. We'll read that again in a second. We see these imprecatory uh, prayers quite a bit in the Psalms. And they are essentially prayers of judgment upon God's enemies. David prayed imprecatory prayers in the Psalms a lot. What, what does that look like? God smash their nose, uh, break their teeth. Uh, you know, get them, Lord. Just get them. Okay? You know, they're your enemies. You know, they, yeah, they're giving me a hard time, but ultimately it's you they're after, Lord. They're just, I'm in the way. And, and so you, you get them, okay? And, and that's what an imprecatory, it was a, a prayer of judgment upon your enemies in the name of God. Now, in the New Testament, we are commanded not to pray imprecatory prayers, okay? Even though we would like to, we, at times. Uh, but we are commanded not to pray imprecatory prayers, at least not directly, hang on, on our enemies. But to pray that they would be saved, of course, and that God would ultimately bless them. That's what we should be praying for, okay? Um, however, the Lord Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, right? Whenever you pray, your kingdom come, you are in a roundabout way praying an imprecatory prayer. Because before Jesus comes to establish his kingdom, he's first got to destroy, fight against, wipe out the rebels. Now, that's, we're not really wanting that to happen. Uh, we want them saved. But... In a sense, this is the closest thing to an imprecatory prayer we Christians are allowed to pray. Okay, and honestly, we don't pray that with the idea, okay, I'm going to pray for the kingdom to come so God can smash all the enemies. No, we we want God's kingdom to come. We want people a part of God's kingdom. I don't want to see anybody go to hell. My worst enemy. I don't want to see anybody go to hell. Okay? Um, But, again, when you pray for God's kingdom to come, before that has to happen, God is going to destroy his enemies. This is what we're reading about in Revelation, right? Um, now, remember this. 
When we looked at chapter 5, we uh, saw the prayers of the saints, and we said that um, the prayers that we pray, they, they never disintegrate or evaporate, right? They ascend to God's throne, and he actually gathers them up, and Revelation 5 says he keeps them in bowls for keepsake, okay? But really, we could also say that um, God gathers up our prayers, and uh and puts them in his active box and they never uh there's no um uh expiration date how do i know that because elizabeth uh, and um zachariah prayed for years they didn't have a son elizabeth was barren you remember that right and now they're old people and way past childbearing and all of a sudden it was gabriel wasn't that gabriel came to zachariah in the temple and as he was offering incense to god it was his turn and said that your prayers have been heard and your wife is going to bear a son by this time next year. Wait, wait, are you kidding me? I stopped praying that prayer 40 years ago. Yeah, well, with God, that doesn't matter, okay? And so the time had come. For everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. And, and that's the idea uh, with regard to all prayers that have ever been prayed to God, both in the Old and New Testaments, they remain in his active box. In other words, they remain uh, in, a, in a place where he is going to answer them uh, in his time, at the appointed time. God's got a time for everything. Uh, well, that day has now come. That time has now come for these prayers to be acted upon. All the imprecatory prayers that have been prayed over the centuries to God, for God to destroy his enemies and for him to establish his kingdom, that day has now come, all right? And I believe that's what these prayers uh, signify. Uh, the day of the Lord's judgments are the fulfillment of all these imprecatory prayers, okay? Turn to Revelation chapter 6. Let's just read about this quickly. Revelation 6 verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy... This is a precatory prayer, okay? How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them, that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. So guys, guys, hang on a little bit. Uh, not everybody who's going to be martyred has been martyred yet. So hang on. Well, then in chapter 7, verse 9, it seems like that number has been fulfilled. After these things, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could number of all nations, tribes, people, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. Verse 14 tells us these are tribulation saints. So now the number of the martyrs mentioned in Revelation 6, 11, that had to be fulfilled before God would unleash these horrific, uh, great tribulation judgments, seems to have been, by the time we come to chapter 7, verse 9, that number has been fulfilled, and now the time has come for God to really pour out the bulk of his, uh, his, his wrath, his judgments. These are now some of the most severe that we're coming into. Verse 4, And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, 
This is the altar in heaven, right? The, the true altar before God's throne. And fill this censer with, uh, uh, with incense and with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. John says the pause in heaven seemed like half an hour. Okay? On the earth, it might have been days or even weeks. You know, I mean, time uh, on earth is, is, you know, when you match up the two, what's going on in heaven with what takes place on earth, there's no direct correlation. We can't say, well, half hour in heaven is a half hour in the earth. What seemed like a half hour to John could have been, you know, several months maybe. We don't know. Dr. Henry Morris, who wrote a great commentary on Revelation, says that after the events of the sixth seal, everything suddenly on earth becomes quiet. It seems that it's all over. The worst is past. He said, after these few terrifying days, the stars stopped falling and the terrible shakings of the earth ceased. The survivors emerged from their shelters and began again to rationalize their resistance to God. After all, these awful calamities could be explained scientifically. So perhaps they had been too quick to attribute them to God's wrath. They quickly set about rebuilding their damaged structures and became more resolute than ever in their opposition to the gospel of Christ, end quote. Well, we're going to see this really come to a crescendo in chapter 16. All right. After some time, when the people of this world begin to think they are safe, then sudden, suddenly destruction and devastation is going to come upon them, and they're not going to escape. Um, let's just close with verse 6. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first four trumpets are judgments against the earth, followed by the fifth and sixth, which are trumpet judgments directed at mankind. The seventh trumpet will unleash the seven bold judgments, which will be against both man and earth. The first four seem to be natural disasters which God uses in a supernatural way to bring judgment. Think of the plagues of Egypt. They were natural, okay, uh, but supernatural in origin. God, God often takes the natural and uses it uh, in a supernatural way to bring judgment or to do whatever he wants to do, okay? Um, we're going we're to see how eerily the bold judgments correspond to the judgments God poured out on Egypt, which I believe was a prelude, a little microcosm of an ultimate time of judgment that we're going to study very shortly in Revelation. So we will look at these trumpet judgments next time and um, it's going to get wild from here on out so <laughs> you know uh, buckle up and so uh, God willing we'll come back and we'll look at the trumpet judgments next time Father we thank you that we have not been appointed to wrath as your people we will have a balcony view of these things happening upon the earth as we will be taken to heaven in the rapture, before the Antichrist is ever revealed, before the judgments of God are ever poured out, we thank you, Lord, for your mercy upon us. We pray that you would show mercy upon our loved ones who don't know you, who are stiff-necked and rebellious, 
that, Lord, you'd soften their hearts. You'd do what you have to do to break them, that they would surrender their lives to you, that they might, along with us, that we all might go in the rapture. We just thank you, Lord, for uh, teaching us through your word what's coming, that uh, we are not in darkness, that these things overtake us as a thief, even though we won't be here for the bulk of the judgments, of course, in Revelation 6 through 19, but it's good to know what's coming so we can warn others. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.